available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome back, everyone, to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And we are the Podcast of Champions, talking Pac-12 football each and every week, even during the offseason. We're keeping it rolling. We just did a show a few days ago, and we're back talking Oregon, Dan, Dave. Dan, Dan, Dave, <laughs> you are Dave, but we're going to talk to Dan later. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, we're talking to Dan, talking to Angie from Oregon State. Um, it's going to be a very, very good show uh, covering our first Pac-12 North programs. Yeah, we did all the Pac-12 South as our deep dive series. So uh, like like uh, Dave said, we're going to talk to Angie Machado from BeaverBlitz.com. And then there's two sites, actually, that have kind of merged together on the 24-7 Sports Network, Duck Territory and eDuck. So we've talked to Steve Summers before. Kevin Wade's been our buddy for a long time. And Matt Prem is the guy that's, uh, from the, uh, from Duck Territory, the, the 24 seven sports site. Unfortunately, uh, we wish Matt a speedy recovery. He had a bad car accident a couple weeks ago, but we thought we'd kind of mix it up and bring in, because there's some, some news around him, Dan Rubenstein from the solid verbal, who's a Oregon grad and knows a lot about Oregon. So it'll be fun to talk to him, Dave. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my goodness. I'm going to screw Ryan. this up. <laughs> That was incredible. Yeah, it's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, we're excited for it. It's going to be a, a long show. I have a feeling. I have this inkling that we're going to have a little bit of a long show today. Bob, you're right. Um, all right, so let's get them. <laughs> Just kidding, though. Uh, so if you want to email us, podcast, uh, email the podcast, podcast at gmail.com. If you want to tweet us, we got a lot of tweets to read today. At Podcast, our website. Pac12podcast.com. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail, we can, we love for you to do that. 641 715 3900, extension 734 972. And Dave, I hope I can get through these interviews because I just seem to be like tongue tied today. Yeah. I think everyone should rewind and have a little drinking game for every, every flub Ryan's had so far. No, I mean, honestly, we give you the hardest job. And by we, I mean I, uh, because you have to read off like all of the same stuff every time. I just say the little intro and then I riff off of whatever you say. So I really have the easy job here. Well, it's not going to be a hard job for either of us with our next couple of guests. So let's start off uh, talking. We're our first series talking on the Pac-12 North schools, starting for the schools up in Oregon. Okay. And as promised, we need to talk about some Oregon Ducks. And who better? To do that, we have Dan Rubenstein. Follow him on Twitter at Dan Rubenstein, R-U-B-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Of course, Solid Verbal, the great podcast, been going on for 10 years, solidverbal.com. You can get all the information there. If you, you like this show, you like college football, you probably already are already listening to the Solid Verbal. If not, this is half of the Solid Verbal right here. Dan Rubenstein. What's up, Dan? How you doing? I'm I'm pretty good. You or you've already decided you don't like the solid verbal. So you're aware of the solid verbal and you you've just made up your mind about whether you like us or not. And that's fine. We 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 make peace with that all the time. I'm I'm you know, life is all right. 
maybe we can convert some people today yes. to, to liking that. the solid verbal after starting out maybe a little bit negative. Maybe, yeah, maybe people didn't like 2016, Dan, but I'm married now. I think I've got a different perspective. 2018, Dan, is a whole different guy. And just to be clear, so people know, Dan did some like information dump, you know, news dump on a Friday night. The solid verbal is not going away. <laughs> Everyone just be clear. The solid verbal is still is still going strong. It will be a robust 2018 for the solid verbal. I can guarantee that. Yeah, it was an unfortunate uh, Friday news dump. Um, SB Nation announced uh, some layoffs, unfortunately, including our friend Dan here. So uh, any what's uh, what's next in the future plans for you at this point? It's a good question. I, I feel very fortunate to, first of all, have been at SB Nation for a long time and made a lot of really close friends and learned a ton from all sorts of people at SB Nation and Vox Media. But moving forward, I've been very flattered also to hear from a lot of people at different places interested in talking to me and figuring out if there might be a role at their place, which is super cool. And it's good to know people like you to whatever extent. So I don't know. It's just, it's conversations, it's meetings, it's figuring out where I fit best. I'm as if not more enthusiastic about making fun, interesting sports video things and audio things as I've ever been. So I am I can say this with a genuine tone that I am extremely excited for what's about to happen uh, moving forward. Yeah, we're excited to uh, hear about it. And uh, Dan and I go way, way back. Like, yeah, with some video that you did, like. We were talking tailgating or something at USC, mm-hmm. like way back in the day. So you you started on the video thing, you know, pretty early, and then you know, adopted all the food takes and everything in there too. So it's really it's really been interesting, kind of following your career as it's uh, developed these last oh, what fifteen years. I don't know. It's been a long time. Yeah, I put you on camera. This was two thousand six when I started the college football tour guide. That was like my own personal project that I came up with an idea for and turned that into a job at Sports Illustrated and a couple other jobs and I ended up at SB Nation. And I was doing that same thing for Sports Illustrated, interviewing tailgaters, the worst job to just go to football games and eat people's food and drink their beer and go to football <laughs> games and get paid for it. But yes, when I, I started with the pack, then Pac-10 and my USC episode just somehow featured Ryan Abraham of uscfootball.com. Follow him inside Troy on Twitter. <laughs> Look at you plugging. I, I think we all kind of started in sports media at some level because we wanted to go to games for free, but you seem to have really gotten the whole package of the food and the and the beer as well, which is certainly ideal. I developed my line. I don't think it was early on when I was just doing Pac-10 stuff, but when I would go out across the country, I would ask people like, oh, can I interview you for Sports Illustrated? It'll be about the game and whatever team, we, whatever school we were at. Um, and then afterwards, they would ask more questions about what the video was. And I would say, you know, for research purposes, like I, you know, I should see how that beef rib tastes because how can i come to this tailgate and not do my thorough scientific responsibility and try so like people really and that's one of those things that not to belabor the point but going around the country cemented for me and we live in a very sort of fractured time it was less so i like to think then but when it came to football there was very little difference between people who love clemson or michigan or usc or washington or ohio state or florida like Generally speaking, people were over the top, loved their team, hated other teams, but in person had a much better perspective than I guess people do on message boards and on Twitter. 
And they just wanted to have a good time with their friends and family and eat ridiculous food and enjoy the sport that everybody loves. So that was like that's the unique perspective that I don't think a lot of people get to have because people generally just go to their favorite school's games or whatever. But it, it really did cement the like, oh, everybody's sort of within a standard deviation of normal, which was which was great to see. The uh, so this was the tenth season, um, and I, I, it's funny. I started my Peristyle podcast for USC same mm-hmm. the same year, and uh, but Dan and Ty, so Ty, uh, Dan's co-host Ty, did a great kind of show that gives you a lot of the history of the solid verbal. I, I definitely recommend going back and uh, listening to that. A lot of the Dan's cool stuff is in there, and then Ty, I didn't realize won like a sports writing contest or something when you know kind of yeah. got him started. Yeah, Ty, and I was in that contest. I think we talked about it on the show, but Ty won the next great American sports writer. It was a writing contest for FoxSports.com, I want to say in 2006-ish, so also right around then. And he got a job. He won the contest, got a job with FoxSports.com, eventually ended up at SI.com, SI on campus. And that's where we met. Just through email, we liked each other's work, and it was just sort of as these distant coworkers who had never met each other. But yeah, Ty, just as a side project, entered this contest and then kept his day job, his mysterious day job, and kept <laughs> writing for Fox and SI. So it's uh, he's got a kind of a cool story too. Yeah. Well, we're uh, very lucky to have you on today uh, to talk some Oregon football. Yes, uh, your your alma mater. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously, a, a place you have a lot of uh, expertise on. Uh, Ryan, should we? Should we? Did you send these questions over to Dan beforehand? I did. I sent them off, and we have a few Twitter questions that we can do afterwards after we do these three from our buddy Hithliday. But then, also, I thought we might talk some of the college basketball stuff if you have some time at the end too. But we wanted to start with this deep Whatever dive you want. series. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. So, uh, just to you know, refresh everyone out there, we've been doing this series. Uh, on the infrastructure of each school in the Pac-12, kind of going over the baseline strengths and weaknesses, not necessarily, you know, what's currently going on with coaches and players, but kind of what the institutional framework of each program is. Um, we've done the entire Pac-12 South. Now we're starting with Pac-12 North with the Oregon schools. Um, so jumping kind of right in, uh, we have uh, the first question associates with resources. Um, so in this case, does Oregon have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high-quality coaching change if it wants? Do, do you want a dramatic pause while I think about this to make it <laughs> seem like everybody doesn't know the answer to this question? Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, if you think Oregon has cash. <laughs> Oregon, uh, through a, a very generous web of boosters and connections to a particular shoe company that I think people know in Nike and Phil Knight. And there's a couple of other actually big money boosters. Um, Oregon has really put a ton of money into their program and facilities. And, you know, it really if you if you look from I guess it was 1994 when Oregon went to the Rose Bowl initially way back when and got a taste of being in the national spotlight and wanted to figure out how to maintain that spotlight. It didn't really happen overnight. It wasn't Phil Knight saying, here's a a truckload of money. And they were awesome from that point on. It was really like a growth period. And it, the, the consistency started somewhere at the turn of the century, you know, 2001 was a great year when they went to the Fiesta bowl. But even with all of that money to build the facilities and everybody knows about the uniforms and the helmets and the, the Joey Harrington billboard in times square, 
they've consistently put money into the program, but you still need a good coach. You still need to be able to recruit. And the, the, obviously the money putting into the facilities helps, you know, raise awareness and gets kids to Eugene, Oregon, which is not near a ton of talent. So it certainly has been a, a boon for the program. But Oregon, it does seem looking forward. There's no reason to believe that they won't keep putting money into facilities and stadium upgrades and uniforms and, you know, the ability to maintain coaches and give coaches raises and keep good coaches and or at least offer competitive salaries to coaches. So that is that appears to be the least of Oregon's worries that they do put a ton of support into the program. You mentioned, um, well, I don't know if you mentioned but Phil Knight, you know, with Nike, but there's other mm-hmm. big name boosters too. But with Phil Knight kind of not being the, you know, it, I guess it was he retiring or whatever it is, like he's not going to be running Nike. I mean, is there concern that there might not be the same level of support that there was when he was the most active uh, as CEO or whatever of the company? I couldn't like with authority answer that question either way, but it seems like, I mean, he hasn't been in charge at Nike. I know he's been the chairman recently and he was the C he hasn't been the CEO in a little bit. Uh, if anything, maybe he has more time to care about Oregon. <laughs> you, you know, the types of people that are on message boards and it might surprise a lot of people, the average age of people on college football message boards, perhaps it skews a little bit older people who are retired or recently retired. So if anything, and I know Phil Knight was at the the Oregon complex for signing day and he's sort of around there for big basketball games and obviously big football games. So if anything, he might be even more involved and passionate about supporting Oregon sports would be my guess. I have no idea though. Uh, and this might even be better in a different uh, section of this, but I want to uh, looking at Oregon, obviously one thing that's unique about it is that relationship with Nike and relationship with Phil Knight. And maybe it's not as unique anymore with Maryland trying to do a similar thing with Under Armour, but it, it was it's certainly the most successful aspect of that. But another aspect that's pretty unique is looking at the coaching continuity over the years, at least until Mark Helfrich and then Willie Taggart, just seems like years and years of the same, not only head coaches, but assistant coaches just kind of going through the program. What do you think influenced that continuity of culture and and that sort of thing why was that such a priority for Oregon really since what the the 70s and 80s yeah it's a good question and I know you know a couple of the assistant coaches went to Oregon and and were you know grad assistants at Oregon early on so I, I suppose there was a certain amount of affinity and just like comfort being in Eugene Oregon a couple of those guys Nick Aliotti uh, Steve Greatwood are guys who have left and perhaps seen that the grass wasn't always greener. They were appreciated. And Oregon was in a, a good position where they were always pretty decent, you know, in the sort of late 90s, mid 2000s. There was, you know, spells where they'd go to the Holiday Bowl for a couple years in a row or they'd jump up and go to the Fiesta or the Rose. But there was a certain amount of, I guess, comfort and the fact that Oregon recognized that. They're going to take care of their own. They're not going to make any rash decisions. I think Mike Bellotti was incredibly loyal and fought for his guys. He was known as a big delegator. So I, I imagine they really felt empowered to you know, coach their position group or help the, the players that they coached execute, uh, run the offense they wanted to run, run the defense they wanted to run. And Mike Bellotti really did look at it like, uh, like his job was a, a CEO job where he's just like, these are my expectations. This is what I expect, but I empower you. And as we know, good head coaches tend to do that and good assistants tend to like coaching in situations where they're empowered. So I think there was some sort of combination of feeling like what you did mattered and that Mike Bellotti had their backs. And that's 
that's pretty rare, especially as we, you know, we're into 2018 and coaches are being fired after two, three years on the job. They're panicking. They're firing guys in the hopes of like, oh, maybe if we hire just the right coordinator or the right recruiter, things can get turned around in a year. Whereas Mike Bellotti had his track record of success and trust with the powers that be that coaches wanted to stay. He built that good rapport and good rapport. And and there was just a, a feeling of like, let's stay and win in Eugene. Why not? We're comfortable. It's a, it's a nice city. You can live pretty cheaply. Felt right. Dave, you want to move on to number two? Uh, well, oh. about the program goals. Okay. Um, so yes. we asked this in the context of program goals, and it's always interesting to ask the different Pac-12 people what those program goals are. You know, for USC, it's one thing, which is compete for the Pac-12 championship every single year, be in the national title conversation more or less every single year. For, say, UCLA, it's try to win the conference every four years or so. For Oregon, obviously, they've had this huge sustained run, a um, little bit of a speed bump the last couple of years, but a huge sustained run through most of the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. What What is the realistic kind of baseline program goal for, for Oregon? I think as it stands now, the the goal for Oregon should be to compete for and win the North more often than not. And obviously it's a Washington program that looks a lot different than it did when Chip Kelly was in Eugene and a Stanford program that is is sort of where it was under Jim Harbaugh and David Shaw early on when he was competing against the, the Chip Kelly Oregon team. But with how Oregon is spending, with how Oregon has hired, with how Oregon has sort of invested in the the structure of the program they're they're not investing just even in the support staff they went after and and hired Georgia's assistant uh strength coach they, you know they're they're going after guys that have experience on a on a national level so i i couldn't imagine mario cristobal's goals for the oregon program having not coached a a single regular season game for the ducks is anything lower than winning the north every year and competing for the conference every year because you know, year one, I think they finished with the top 15 recruiting class. I would imagine they'll average a bit higher than that, top 10, top 12. And if you finish in that range and you and you build up a, a talent level that is consistently top 10, top 12, there's no reason that there should be any expectation less than competing for the Pac-12 every year. And I, I understand USC's expectation should be a little higher with the amount of talent nearby and what they should be able to stock their program with depth-wise. But maybe just short of that is where Oregon, I think, will get back to being in terms of expectations. Well, that's a good segue to our second part, uh, recruiting. So yes. Does, so does Oregon. Uh, so this is the school. Does Oregon have the first pick of the best recruits in the area? And how valuable is that pool? And then how is the how is the school? How is Oregon thought of by national recruits? No, kind of. And super well. <laughs> um, so um, Oregon does not have the first pick of recruits because because of their location. And it's gotten better in the Pacific Northwest, especially in Oregon. But because of the, their location, they need to sell various things more. They don't just need to sell play near mom and dad because there's not many of those kids. Whereas USC or Texas or Ohio State, whatever, they can they can sort of get away with saying we're a great program or we're not that far from your parents. So Oregon has to sell, you know, the, the atmosphere and the facilities and the coaching staff and that it's not that difficult for their parents to get to Eugene and the style of play 
and their big academic center and the support staff that they have for academics, like they have to put on a full court press because they are pulling from Southern California, Northern California, Texas, a little bit of Florida and just the Midwest. I know they have an offensive lineman coming in from Philadelphia this year who's pretty well regarded. So they will not ever they won't ever have the first pick of blue chip recruits unless they are. I think Justin Herbert's little brother is a big time recruit locally. So that's somebody that they will probably have the first choice pick of. But outside of situations like that, and even legacy guys from Oregon haven't stayed. We saw Elijah Molden, I believe is his name, from a couple of years ago. His dad played at Oregon. He ends up at Washington. So it's still a challenge because if you're from Southern California, there's a lot of allure to stay in Southern California. It's a great place. If you're from Oregon, if you're from a small town in Oregon, I don't think the pull of I'm just going to stay in the state of Oregon is as great as I'm going to go to play at Stanford or USC or Michigan or see somewhere new. I don't, I don't think the desire to see somewhere, the desire to stay home is as attractive for Oregon kids. Um, that said, I think Oregon is in a good place right now in terms of 2016, 17, 18 kids when they were 8, 9, 10 years old. Oregon was wearing the best uniforms, running the most exciting offense, playing in enormous games every year. So you you find that there are recruits now who are from Georgia, Missouri, Texas, who grew up with Oregon as their favorite team. And Oregon has invested in coaches who are known to be good recruiters from various regions. And they do have an opportunity to recruit nationally because of that initial sort of mental imprint that was made with you know, D'Anthony Thomas and Marcus Mariota and Michael James and Darren Thomas and, you know, Kenyon Barner, all these guys who are in the NFL, were in the NFL, were seen week in and week out on national TV, running it in from 80 yards out. So in terms of branding, in terms of memories, in terms of national reputation, Oregon is in an excellent, excellent place. And I know uh, Hawaii became a, a bit of a recruiting sure. area for Oregon, especially with Mariota. Um, and then I know Tua Tagovailoa was one of those guys who was interested in Hawaii initially, or interested in Oregon initially, and then yeah. um, Alabama came in. Has that been something that's been sustained even since um, you know Chip Kelly obviously started with Mariota? But has that been something that's just been sustained as a recruiting area of, of priority for Oregon? I think there have been a couple of kids, blue chip type kids. I don't know if they're four stars or three stars or high three stars, whatever. There have been a couple of those uh, Hawaiian, you know, the Hawaiian connection that has worked out because of Mariota, Mariota, excuse me, or sort of indirectly because because Oregon is always, you know, Steve Greatwood, the old Oregon uh, offensive line coach. He's at UCLA now, correct? With no, I think he's still at Cal. He is still at Cal. Okay, he was rumored. So maybe, sorry about that. Um, no, no, so, he, uh, they were talking about it, but he just didn't, uh, gotcha. didn't pull the trigger, apparently. So he he recruited the islands really well, not just Hawaii, but the sort of American, Polynesian, Maris, Samoan islands, whatever. So Oregon does have a history of Polynesians succeeding in Eugene, and you're seeing it more and more. And you know maybe the best recent defensive player that to come through Oregon is now sort of shining in the NFL into DeForest Buckner. He's another guy who, you know, not a lot of people remember that he went to high school in, in Hawaii. And, you know, obviously Masoli had the Hawaiian connection. But, uh, yeah, I think Oregon's reputation is still particularly strong in Hawaii. And it's I mean, it's all Mariota. I think the the first part of that question and your answer was very interesting. Um, you would think Oregon, you know, there's two programs in Oregon and o- obviously Oregon's got a lot more of a 
reputation than Oregon State. But is it something where can the Ducks be the number one landing spot for like not not that there's a ton of local talent that go you know Pac-12 level, but can they get to that point where they would be that? And it it's not like there's one school that comes in and kind of dominates Oregon recruiting, right? It's more of just like everyone right. picks at the the carcass a little bit. Yeah, I, I think Oregon can get to that place. It's tough. And I mean, I think it really does get back to the like, if you're from a small town in Oregon, is Eugene, Oregon as attractive as Westwood or L.A. or, you know, somewhere warmer, somewhere not as rainy, somewhere not as gray? You know, and I say that as somebody who went to Oregon and, and really liked my time in Eugene. But you have to be sort of realistic about how a, a 16 or 17 year old might think. I think it'll improve. I think with their current coaching staff they're going to do everything they can if, if they don't get a kid from Oregon that they want I don't think it'll be because of lack of trying um I just think it, it's it is an uphill battle in a way that I don't think a lot of people a lot of people think about I think USC got a top safety from the state or athlete whatever he was this past class um obviously you know a legendary safety who is now going to the Hall of Fame for the Pittsburgh Steelers and Troy Palomalo is from or went to high school in southern Oregon so it, it's still a tough pull, but I think I think they are going to get to the point where they're going to be able to keep kids close more often than not, should they want them. Yeah, and it's it, it, Oregon is just so unique for me because most of the schools that are competing, you know, super nationally every year, you know, they're top ten contenders every year. They're recruiting nationally, but they also are sitting on pretty decent hotbeds like USC. I mean, they're right. sitting on Southern California. They obviously recruit nationally. Florida State, they recruit nationally, but they're sitting in Florida. Um, and Oregon's so interesting to me because they have to buck that trend, recruit Texas and Florida and California so well if they want to compete because Oregon just doesn't produce that level of talent. Yeah, the big thing, too, that helped Chip Kelly to succeed is they were so good at identifying talent and saying, this is what we want in a running back or a receiver. And they did these crazy extensive background checks. And basically every kid that committed to Oregon and signed with Oregon got into school, you know, all the grades were in a good place. And a lot of them just, you know, Oregon didn't have to kick kids off the team for being knuckleheads. Like you, you have that certain knucklehead attrition every year and Oregon was able to build depth and they would blow teams out and play their, their number twos, their number threes at every position. They built depth that way. And that was the sort of, you know, a lot of people in, in looking at what Mark Helfrich did and saying, well, it's unfair, you know, a couple of years after going to the national championship and developing a Heisman Trophy quarterback that he's he's gone. Oregon was in a pretty dire place in terms of recruiting and attrition like Oregon recruiting fell off in a pretty big way. And it wasn't it wasn't that he wasn't able to attract a, you know, a blue chip receiver here or a blue chip defensive lineman there. It was that not a lot of those guys worked out. The, you know, maybe it was the background check. Maybe it was whatever it was. Oregon just whiffed at a lot at, at a much higher rate under Mark Helfrich. And, you know, there were guys kicked off the teams for disciplinary reasons and they just became thin. And I, I do think that Oregon is going to be able to build up the depth to where it was before. It is still going to be a matter of how many like high three star wins will will Mario Cristobal and his staff make, you know, how many offensive linemen from Arizona, how many safeties from Missouri, how many, you know, tight ends from sure in Oregon work out as a success story on a high Pac-12 level. That's the key. It's not necessarily the top of the top for Oregon. It's how many of those high three stars work out as by the time they leave four star, five star talent. 
What's your kind of sense with uh, Mario Cristobal? Because obviously Willie Taggart looked like he was, you know, building that recruiting train. It was just, it looked like it was just going to be, you know, yeah, tremendous. So, do you think Cristobal is able? Obviously, you get a little step back because uh, you know the the coaching change. But do you think he can kind of get back on that same track? I think so. Yeah, I think Mario Cristobal's reputation precedes him as a very good recruiter. The staff he has, they're, they're dogged all over the that staff. Even you know, sometimes you don't always have coordinators who are great recruiters. But Jim Levitt, I think, has a very good reputation, especially on the West Coast as a recruiter. And so I, I do think Oregon's be able to attract talent. The big thing for me, where Mario Cristobal perhaps sort of goes a different direction. If there's a fork in the road, it's personality-wise between him and Willie Taggart. I don't think there is that that flash, that cool factor that Willie had, that immediate connection that that he made with kids, and he will make it Florida State. He's going to recruit the hell out of Florida. I'm positive Florida's going to have top five classes, or Florida State will have top five classes as long as he's there. But from everything I've heard about Mario Cristobal, it's that he is super-duper organized. There are there are binders of 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022 kids. You know, there are plans. There, There's a structure in place. One of the new structures that he's talked about is they're going to have three or four, I forget the exact number, coaches involved in the recruiting of every single prospect to sort of help mitigate uh, attrition among the coaching staff. If they lose a wide receiver coach, if they lose an offensive coordinator, they don't lose all of the associated recruits. There is sort of backup plans. So there are touching touch points for all of the recruits that are, are interested in Oregon to sort of help mitigate issues like Oregon has had these past couple of years in both firing a head coach and losing a head coach to another job. So Oregon seems to be ahead of the curve in, in terms of recruiting infrastructure and, and building up that depth through what is what has to be national recruiting. You know, following uh, Jim Levin on Twitter is a lot of fun, um, and his his whole um, his Pepsi kick is uh, pretty wild. But he so he's getting paid. I think it's now one point seven million. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds year? right. Somewhere around there. Does he uh, just following his Twitter account? It seems like he does a lot of recruiting for a defensive coordinator, and that's always interesting for me. Um, as a UCLA guy, I'm used to re- coordinators just generally not recruiting at all. Um, right. What? What do you uh, do, is he one of the better recruiters on staff or does he just make it kind of public on Twitter that he's recruiting guys? From what I've heard, he is, especially given his connections to Florida from his time at, at USF. So he has connections in the Sunshine States and but in California and the West Coast, you know, he's been at Colorado. He was with the 49ers. So his name is known on the West Coast. And I, I really do think that energy is real. I really do think there there have been some results with Jim Levitt as a recruiter. Because he is somebody, especially with the carryover between the Willie Taggart era to now the, the Mario Cristobal era, there is a consistency of like, look what I've done with Oregon's defense in just a year. They are average now after being historically inept in one year. That is that's a huge, huge deal. And so and he can point now to play, you know, Troy Dye did an outstanding job in year one in Jim Levitt's defense. Um, Jalen Jelks was sort of a, a not all American, but in that caliber, all Pac-12 type player as a defensive end, extremely disruptive. Jordan Scott, a true freshman, came in and made an immediate impact at nose tackle. So the offense can't point to it because nobody's really sure what Oregon's offense is going to look like without Willie Taggart, who was the one calling the plays despite having Mario Cristobal as an offensive coordinator. So teams tended to recruit against Oregon in that regard, saying, oh, you're a wide receiver. I don't know if they're going to be throwing it. Look at all these giant offensive linemen they're recruiting. They're going to be a power-running team. Why would you go to Oregon? 
Whereas defensively, Jim Levitt can point to his own admittedly very short track record as a reason to come to Eugene, Oregon. So that's that's it has to be nice for for Oregon with another coaching transition that you have that continuity. Dave, should we move on to number three? Let's do it. All right, you want to read it? You want you want to read it? I'll I'll do it. Uh, uh, so yeah. um, this is the third section: uh, politics. Um, yeah. Does football does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? And how would you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? Wow, that is a loaded question. <laughs> uh, every so often, you do see pushback from. Not necessarily administrators, but faculty, teachers, professors, whatever, that football is too big a deal. And, you know, college football, as you both very well know, on the West Coast is not what it is basically everywhere else in the South, in the East Coast, in the Midwest. So there is a certain degree, I think, you know, with Eugene, Oregon, obviously being a very liberal place and a lot of outspoken professors, that there is a sense that football occupies too much of the local psyche. That said, it seems like administrators are are fully on board. The fact that they do have Phil Knight and they have a couple of big boosters and they have Nike, it's not football is not taking away funds as far as I know that would be going that could be going to science or literature or poetry or mathematics whatever. So I I think there is a a pretty I don't know what the word would be, but I think I think people tend to get along and have made peace with the fact that Oregon is a school that, you know, a large part of its brand. And this is true of a lot of enormous football schools like football attracts students. Football attracts applications to, to go to Oregon, which in turn produces money and you got to run a college with money. So I think there is an understanding and an acceptance. And Oregon, as the last time I checked, this could be different. Oregon's athletic department is relatively, if not fully, self-sustained. So I, I, I think there is a, a pretty decent ceasefire in terms of any sort of tension along those lines. It was What was the second part or the third part of that question? How would you describe the factional divisions among the hmm. fan base boosters and insiders? So Oregon fans are interesting as far as I know. I, I was there from 2001 to 2005, which means that I sort of, my career as an Oregon fan began with like the start of the modern good times the the Joey Her- the end of the Joey Harrington era so you have old timers who are like you weren't around for the the sad times you're not a real fan or like you know we'll take 7 and 5 or 8 and 4 that's that's incredible if you really followed Oregon football in the 60s or something <laughs> and i i don't think they carry a ton of weight because college football is now a what have you done for me in the last year two years three years sport so when you look at what Oregon has poured into the program I think the most realistic fans recognize the challenges in recruiting to a school not near a hotbed of talent and and recognize that the Pac-12 is stronger than it was when Chip Kelly was there I know USC fans uh, totally understand that you know the Pac-10 was not particularly strong when they dominated and that's fine because everybody takes advantage of circumstance that succeeds. So I, I think the better Oregon fans recognize that everything is within context. And there there's, I mean, the same with every team that there is going to be a push pull between like the so-called real fans and the Johnny come lately's. My view is generally if we can sort of 
watch and enjoy this in a non-harmful way, that's fine. As soon as it sort of, as soon as people start harassing players on the team or are disappointed by not going 12 and 0 every year, that's when it just sort of becomes tiring. So I, I'd like to think Oregon fans are pretty good, but I would just say Oregon fans are split up in the same way that most all fans are, except for UCLA fans. They're a little bit worse <laughs> <laughs> because they don't, they never had the taste. They never had the modern taste. I can, huh. I can speak to that with, with authority. <laughs> Listen, I love Cade McNown as somebody from LA or the LA area. I, I don't like that. I say LA when I'm from the Valley, but as somebody from that area, I deeply loved those UCLA teams, and it was heart that Miami game was heartbreaking. Those two years were the taste. That was it. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a twenty game winning streak that somehow did not result in an undefeated season. Just good on you, UCLA. Or a Rose, yeah, it, or it, a it Rose takes Bowl a special win. team. Yeah, yeah, that takes see that takes talent. See, that's impressive <laughs> in its own right. Dan, the, the it's interesting the way you answer that question because it does seem like. The way the, you know, how Oregon's up, you know, this up and coming thing that's happened in the last couple of decades, there would be some sort of pushback, but it just seemed the way it was orchestrated that, you know, if you're some like liberal professor, you could still look at it and go, you know what? I, I don't really like all this stuff, but it's not costing me anything and it's good for my school. Um, right. the fan and I even like the old school fans, like we, there, we see at USC, there's old school fans that hate when, you know, they're not running, you know, uh, student body left and student body right anymore. Um, they mm. want to, you know, they want to go back to the old school stuff. But with with old school Oregon fans, you would think you would look at this and go, yeah, I'd rather. Well, I don't know if I would rather. Everything seems to be better now than it was then. It seems like right. the way it's happened, it's just it's a it's a great way to keep everyone on the same page and not not worry about the change that came because it was all it seemed like it was all better. You're not going to believe this, Ryan and David, but it might be a case of people projecting their own identity onto their favorite college football team. <laughs> that so happens? Weird. If you, felt, if you felt the world was better in 1968, maybe you thought USC should look a lot like they did in 1968 or Oregon State or Washington State, whatever. And I think that's that's where you get into like the don't like Johnny come latelys of like you don't remember when Oregon was bad. You won't you, you only want Oregon to win by 45 every week and you don't appreciate how good this is or something like that would would make a little bit more sense. You don't appreciate the down years, whatever. But, yeah, there's certainly a, a faction of people who like think an Oregon team who went seven and three in 1974. But they had this one player that they liked that that was the best quarterback Oregon has ever had. And that's not true. That is just not true. So there is there is the same amount of projection among Oregon fans of all ages as there are for for any team. But yes, it just the way it manifests itself with USC, it definitely does with Oregon. And maybe this is a linked question with uh, the resources and thing I asked about before about coaching continuity. But with the increased money in the program you know paying a defensive coordinator 1.7 million which is mm -hmm. unheard of in the pac-12 at least i mean it's getting crazy in the sec now but um with all of that you know they did fire a coach for the first time and basically forever in mark Helfrich, and then mm -hmm. billy taggart's gone after a year there's none of that coaching continuity that had been there for so long is that a direct result of the money where you know people who are investing that amount of money want the return and so there's going to be a little bit more turnover like with mark helfrick or what do you attribute that to do you think it's unrelated 
I think there's probably an element of that. I think you, you, it's not necessarily a return on the money, but it's like we are we are investing in this program to be a national level program. And I think the Mark Helfrich situation was a confluence of recruiting. And some guys are just not head coaches at major national places. And that's fine. There are some people that are better coordinators. There are some people that are better secondary coaches. And I just think it, it became apparent with, with Mark Helfrich specifically that he was perhaps not built to sustain that high level of success that Chip Kelly was able to bring to Eugene, Oregon. And that's fine. I, I, it would not surprise me if he had a bunch of success with, he's with the Bears now, right? I believe that's where he ended up. Yeah, I think he's, he's the offensive coordinator. Yeah. yeah, the offensive coordinator with the Bears. It wouldn't surprise me because by all accounts, Mark Helfrich is a super smart, likable dude who compliments other people who are who have their their can I say shit? I was gonna say shit. Do their it. shit together. Sure. Um but like yeah, it's it's just a situation. It doesn't necessarily say that Oregon is done with continuity forever. It's just a situation where Oregon recognizes that in twenty this happened in twenty, I guess, sixteen, that the college football landscape has changed. And if Oregon fashions itself as innovative and fast paced in terms of staying ahead of the curve with the sport as they were, they, you know, they were the first ones doing the uniform thing. They were an early adopter of the spread in like 2005, I guess, with Gary Croton, that if they're going to stay ahead of the curve, they can't sit back and hope for the best with a coach who looks to be on a downward trajectory. So I think they, they almost tapped into their own identity in moving away from Mark Helfrich. Did you, uh, did you like Mark as a, as an analyst? I thought he was good. And then I want to make sure if Oregon and Notre Dame play, what's the solid verbal going to do? Cause I think that would be amazing. Ah, <laughs> oh, the solid verbal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ty will fall asleep very early. You know, Notre Dame fans <laughs> have a rough time. Four full quarters is tough to be on the couch without catching a few Z's. Um, I think I think Oregon and Notre Dame would play a totally fun game and it would be a good college football game. I actually I thought I didn't watch a ton. A lot of the college football I watch is TVs on mute, multiple TV setups. So I, I didn't really pay attention to a ton of play by play unless it was the exciting part of a game I happened to be watching. It's almost like an analog uh, red zone for college football. So from what I've heard and from what I saw, I, I thought he was really good. He's a smart dude who can make good insights about college football. That that was never the issue with Mark Helfrich. But I honestly, like everybody has great things to say about him as a human. So I, I hope he goes out and has a ton of success and finds happiness wherever he is. I've got to ask this for, uh, I think we're, I think we're done with the, the politics question, right, Ryan? Yeah. yeah. Else? So we can go on and do some I, tweets or any I've, other I've, questions. I've yeah. got, I've got to ask for, uh, for my UCLA listeners, your just general thoughts on Chip Kelly and what you think he's going to do, uh, in Westwood. Sure. Um, I'm deeply in love with the memory of Chip Kelly at Oregon. I just, it was such a fun time and I'm, I've almost made peace with the fact that if Oregon's never really that good again, we had a really good four years as Oregon fans. So, uh, I think he's going to succeed. I, he is, he feels very different from Jim Mora. I'm curious to see how much of what he sort of really dove into as an NFL coach shows itself at UCLA, whether it's the sports science, some of which he was doing at Oregon, whether it's, you know, more pro passing concepts. He used a lot of what he did at Oregon with the Eagles and the 49ers. I, I, I'm curious to see what that looks like. I, I find it very hard to believe that a coach like Chip Kelly is going to go to UCLA and say, 
I'm just going to do exactly what I did at Oregon and hope it works. So I am confident in Chip Kelly's ability to evolve and find assistant coaches that he likes working with. You know, he's got a couple of old Oregon coaches. I know Don Pelham's on the defense, uh, on the defensive coaching staff. So I am bullish that Chip Kelly will put a more exciting brand of football, especially offense on the field for UCLA. It's, it still strikes me as hard to believe that like Chip Kelly views UCLA. If, if he succeeds, if you know, UCLA goes to a Rose bowl or something where he's like, yep, I'm just going to be here the rest of my life until they don't want me. So if he succeeds, I, I could see four or five years in Westwood. I don't know where he would go from there. If he's able to rehab his image and listen, if Lane Kiffin's able to Chip Kelly for sure will be able to, as a, as a top coach, I would imagine UCLA is going to probably hover in that same range where Jim Mora was, but in a more likable way that would buy him more time and winning eight and a half, nine games a year and maybe have, you know, a 10 win season, an 11 win with a bowl win season in them if the quarterback development is there. But in terms of where the Pac-12 is right now with Stanford, Washington, USC, you know, a Kevin Sumlin fun Arizona team in the division, Utah's consistency. The Pac-12 is in a lot better place than it was when he was at Oregon. So I just think it's going to be tougher. I don't think he's necessarily going to be worse. Just the challenge is going to be greater. What's you a good... cited a win total that UCLA has never oh. achieved. And 11. 11. Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, in, in an era where we now have a conference championship game and a bowl game. So it sort of skews the context a little bit, but... Yeah, I, I I don't think it's unheard of. The the blue chip coming in is Doriel Tom something Thompson. Dorian Thompson Robinson, yeah. Dorian Thompson Robinson, yes. I was saying Doriel Green Beckham. That's very confusing. Right. Yes. Um <laughs> if if he develops and if he is the real deal, I I think he came from a big high school in Vegas. If he is somebody that comes in and has Chip Kelly coaching from day one, by the time he's a sophomore or junior, if if everything works out with him, there's no reason to believe with the talent that UCLA should be able to build up on the depth chart that they are not competing at least for the South every year. If, if, if the quarterback position works out and Chip Kelly has gotten way more out of way less talent than it looks like this guy has, there's no reason to believe they're not at least in the conversation for double digit wins every year. What's it going to be like uh, November 3rd? Oh, Eugene I know you're going to ask. Like, what's that going to be like? It's going to be very difficult, Ryan. <laughs> it sounds like a bad breakup, honestly. It sounds like a, it sounds like a rough breakup for you. Yeah. It, it, it's because it was such a like, by 2014, like, well, Marcus Mariota's having the best season of perhaps any Pac 10, 12 quarterback, if not beyond ever in terms of his accuracy and productivity in a lot of like three quarter games. I was fine with Mark Halford to 2014. I was fine with the succession plan. I was fine with Chip Kelly no longer being there. I miss Chip Kelly. I wish he were still in Eugene. But now that we've had a coach sort of lose control of the locker room and, and recruiting in Mark Halfridge, and then Willie Taggart leave after a year. And I understand that Florida State was, was the only job he would have left for. But to see where that coaching job has gone, it makes me miss somebody who was there for four years and succeeded, I think went to a BCS game at the very least every year he was there, makes me miss him so much. And to see him on the other sideline wearing different Pac-12 colors, it's going to be, it's almost like 
falling in love with somebody, dating them for a little bit, it not working out. They move on. They move across the country. And then they just start dating your cousin. <laughs> but of all of the conferences, of all of the people. <laughs> so that's going to take a second. That's going to take a second. Yeah, that's going to be must-see TV that day. I mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I really am. It'll be fun. Um, we All right, so we've got some. We got a few Twitter questions to get through real quick, right? Let's yeah, I got one uh, from the dog pen. So I'm guessing he Ooh. either loves dog. He's an animal lover or a dog. Big Cleveland Brown fan. Yeah, but maybe that. <laughs> he said, "Should I put down just ninety percent of my life savings or the whole one hundred percent on the biggest lock of 2018, Justin Herbert winning the Heisman?" Ooh, I I wouldn't. I don't, I think he'll have a really good year. I think to have that sort of continuity uh, on the offensive line in front of him, I think they only lose one starter. So he has a good line. They lose Royce Freeman, who was, uh, you know, a terrific safety valve, one of the best Oregon running backs ever, if not the best. Uh, they're not crazy talented at receiver. Dylan Mitchell I like a lot. Johnny Johnson had a pretty nice true freshman year. But in terms of pass-catching talent, I don't know that they are going to have a, a guy that can take a swing pass for 70 in the way that Marcus Mariota had, or, you know, somebody to get behind a defense in the way that he had with Devin Allen, who was like an Olympic hurdler. So I I don't think the surrounding pieces are necessarily there. I think he is going to put up, it's almost going to be like one of those ASU quarterbacks, coincidentally under Mark Helfrich when he was the quarterback's coach, like a Rudy Carpenter type, like he'll throw for a ton. He'll be great. He'll be accurate. But because Oregon's probably going to lose three or four games this year, it's, it's not going to be a Heisman year, I don't think, for Herbert. And then uh, we've got a question from Chris Nabel on Twitter. Uh, nice work getting Dan Rubenstein. He is big yes. time. Uh, question for him is, which scenario would you rather have occur this year? A, the Ducks beat the Huskies but lose to the Beavers. Or B, the Ducks lose to the Huskies but beat the Beavers. So I guess each of these scenarios, it's what do you want it to say about your team? If you lose to right. this year's Washington team, they're expected to be really good. They're deep and talented, and they were in the playoff two years ago, and they were in a group of, or they were in a, a New Year's six game last year against Penn State. They they totally belong on the national stage, especially defensively. If Oregon loses to Oregon State but beats Washington, you're saying, well, they're stupid inconsistent. They lose to this team that finished the year losing 10 straight last year. And I imagine Jonathan Smith is going to help turn things around. I, I would rather, as an Oregon fan and as the brother of a Washington alum, I think I'd rather have Oregon beat Washington than lose to Oregon State because they could, that still means they could go 10-2 and two or something like that. Mm-hmm. That still means that if they are beating Washington, and I believe this year is in Eugene, they're beating Washington. That means something is going crazy right for Oregon. And they just sort of, you know, they, they treat Oregon State like a, a, they sort of look past Oregon State, which has happened. So that, that I would take that one. Beat Washington, lose to Oregon State. It still tells me Oregon's in a good place. We had a tweet. Well, I guess I got trolled on the Twitter. Like Big Easy 206 said, I don't have, I asked if anyone had a question. He said, I don't have one. I have 70. And I, <laughs> I said, uh, I was like, well, how about one? He said, I'm just trolling. Uh, and they put seven seventy, but that Oregon yeah. afterwards fans, LOL. My dogs dropped 70 on their hapless defense in 2016. Old Testament beat down. Seems like he's living in the past a little bit. That's like two years ago trolling. I mean, if we want to live in the past, how many did Oregon win in a row? 
Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, at a certain point you have to pick. Do you want to live in the present? If you want to live in the past, it's fine. We can talk about, you know, how many straight they won between 2004 and 2015. So um, that's cool. Washington, you know, they're getting a taste and I I appreciate it. The Pac-12 is better for having more good teams. And I imagine Chris Peterson's going to stay forever and everything's going to go right for Washington in perpetuity. <laughs> All right, there's there's one more question I want your thoughts on. Uh, I don't think I think this might be the last one. Uh, yeah. What is the next crazy way? This is from uh, Ginger Bruin. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the next crazy way a recruit announces for a school? We've seen haircuts, pets, babies, videos, but there's got to be another level. Is it a tattoo using a famous alum? I want to see more ridiculousness. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, if this were like 2000. 10 i would say a flash mob but i don't think that's a thing anymore so i don't want to seem super dated i it'll be something with social media that will be unusual like everybody's gonna have to go follow so-and-so's instagram story or something to find out where he's going um to get really creative with it yeah i think it'll be some sort of like you see sometimes you the the gender baby reveals of like Something exploding or cutting into a cake. Maybe we'll. Have we seen a cake for a recruiting Ooh. reveal? I, I don't know if we have yet. Um, so I, I think it'll take a cue from that type of social media gender baby reveal, a balloon popping. I think we saw this year. Maybe skywriting. I you know it's <gasps> slow though. It's slow. You're gonna have to stay and watch. <laughs> for, you know what? Skywriting is actually not a bad idea. Because if you stream it online, that's you're gonna get a ton of buildup. Oh yeah, you, the the drama's <laughs> mounted, and you can't just write USC. It has to be, you know, you start writing with a T, and everybody's like, is is something happening with Tennessee with Texas? <laughs> and then it turns out he's going for Trojans. Like I I feel like there's there's good area for misdirection, and you allow a good social media live video buildup. Skywriting is my answer. If if someone had like a donut wall incorporated, you would be all over that, right? Like, oh my god, yeah. I mean, you could bite into <laughs> like a a jelly or a cream donut to reveal the color of the school you're attending. Nice. You've you got to make sure you have like a, a close up camera, <laughs> otherwise people are just going to think you're eating a donut as you reveal. But yeah, I think you could go with the donut wall. Oh wait, yeah, you you had one at your wedding, right? Because I I think we were tweeting. Oh my god. Like at the at Pac-12 Media Day, they had like donuts for all the schools, like all the specific schools. Right. So that, yeah. Had a donut wall at my wedding and cannot recommend it enough. I most of the food we had at our wedding was handheld. We wanted people to just, you know, grab a slider, grab a taco, grab a donut, keep on dancing, or just like walk to another table and talk to people you know. So we were really encouraging mobility at our wedding. And the donut wall came through big time. Could not and like we don't like cake anyway. So we that was a stand that my wife and I took like we are going to have a donut wall. We have a variety of flavors. You know, some people like, you know, cake donuts or yeast donuts or glazed or sprinkles or whatever. And, you know, variety is the spice of life. And I, I really think we nailed it. And I to, to anybody that is engaged or about to be engaged or just throwing an event in general, consider the donut wall. Nice. You'll be happy. <laughs> um. Th- well, you've already been on for we're like pushing an hour. Did you, Dave, you want to? If you have some time, Dan, get some thoughts yeah. on the whole college basketball fiasco stuff that's going on now. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's a part of recruiting across both basketball and football, but it's it's much more well known in basketball because the shoe companies are a lot more 
prevalent and one player can make a lot bigger impact. You know, even playing one season at a school than he can playing three seasons in a lot of cases for a college football team. Even if you have, you know, somebody on Dominican Sue's level as a defensive tackle. And I use that example just because he was dominant, not because I know anything about his recruitment. But if you, you still, if you have a star small forward, he's going to make a lot bigger impact. So it seems like it's market forces at work in a situation where market forces aren't legally allowed to work out. I I've found myself not caring all that much just because I understand it's the rule and it's against the rule. And it, it'd be nice if things were more out in the open so we could just enjoy basketball instead of, again, projecting our own very specific values onto something we will never be able to control. So we might as well have everything out there. I'm fine with it. I, I'm fine with it. You know, if if coaches are being screwy and breaking rules and taking advantage of things, then coaches, I'm fine with coaches being disciplined and punished. But I I, I find myself not particularly caring about, you know, players getting sort of under the table handouts. My problem is actually if players aren't getting the money, if it's a handler, if it's a, a shady uncle, if it's a super nice uncle, like I want the players to benefit from these actions. So that that's my only real concern is, you know, I, I don't want somebody being acting as like a barnacle and, and reaping the results. So I, I'm generally fine with it. I hope that it instigates change in a positive way for players who are affecting things in a huge way on the court. That's all. That's sort of my concern. I'm, I'm, I've always been sort of a, a pro player guy. So I, I hope it, I hope it uh, brings about healthy change for the people making money for the sport. Yeah, I fully agreed with all of that. And the, the other thing is just watching, because a lot of this is coalesced and focused on Sean Miller. So a lot of other Pac-12 right. fans are uh, certainly delighting in the, in the, in the Arizona downfall. But I, it's so short-sighted to me for any fan of a college basketball program to think in any way that they are going to emerge untouched from this investigation. I mean, yes, Arizona has been uncovered now, but um, the entire institution is seedy. I mean, there's, there's payments to players at every level of this uh, delightful institution we call college basketball. So just keep that in mind. By the way, I'm not upset that, you know, Arizona was involved in this. I'm actually upset that Sean Miller was a bad cheater and was on the phone. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Never don't... do shady things on the phone. Always in person. Come on, dude. <laughs> well, it's what funny. a novice move. What yeah. a novice move. It was it's a Chip Kelly writing a personal check move. <laughs> yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> I, yeah. There should be in the way that like college freshmen have to go to like a symposium and like a welcome thing. <laughs> And the way that coaches have to take like a like understand when the the quiet period is and take a recruiting test, there should be like, all right, this is the game. This is how it works. Be cool and you'll be fine. Yeah, I really liked your point with the uh, let the players you want the players to have the benefit right now. There's all those barnacles, as you called it, like they're yeah. getting benefits. It's awesome. Yeah, that's that's one of the benefits of this would be having just the players get the benefit. Uh, but I don't did you watch i have not watched a lot dave and i talk about this i used to love you know not love but i I liked watching college basketball i just hardly watch it at all until march madness but this kind of made me watch it more i mean i would watch like that whole oregon arizona game you know i haven't watched a whole college football game all year 
maybe it's maybe it's a very shrewd move by various conferences <laughs> to generate interest in their sport that a lot of people aren't interested in until March. Maybe it's the most savvy marketing college basketball has ever seen. And surprise, surprise, it took shoe companies getting involved who are wonderful marketers. So I like where your head is at, that you're suddenly interested with controversy. I like that. Yeah, they just tipped off the FBI and let them know and, you know, hey, oh, investigate man. us. Two steps ahead. I love it. Awesome. Well, the great Dan Rubenstein, I, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, one of the godfathers of Oh. Of podcasting certainly college football podcasting with the solid verbal it's the standard that everyone kind of holds themselves up to so we appreciate you coming on our little show here and talking some west coast pac-12 football with us but it's, it's always fun having you on and this was this was great thanks man the pleasure is all mine the ryan abraham the david woods what are we talking about i'm all in <laughs> thanks dan it was a lot of fun no problem okay so that was Thorough breakdown of Oregon. We are going to now switch to from Eugene to Corvallis, Oregon State. We're going to talk uh, with Angie Machado. She knows all about Oregon State Beavers because she's the publisher of BeaverBlitz.com. You definitely should check it out. The best Oregon State site out there. Follow on Twitter at Angie Machado, number one, M-A-C-H-A-D-O. Angie, thanks for coming on. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Oh, we can't complain. We could, but we won't. Um, okay, good. See, we're just in baseball <laughs> mode now at Oregon State. Basketball's not not doing too much, and so it's um full on baseball and spring football mode for for me. Number two when in the does country, spring right? Football kickoff for Oregon State. Not until April. So Oregon State is on the uh, uh term system, so quarter system. So after spring break, the end of March, they'll come back, start spring term, and then kick off spring football. And then Oregon State baseball is like number two in the country or something, right? They are number two. Just had eight games down in Surprise Arizona and walked away eight zero. Wow. So what what's been the biggest driver? For, I'm just going to start talking Oregon State baseball right now because <laughs> football was pretty rough last year. Basketball's <laughs> not going great. So let's talk some baseball. So Oregon State baseball, it's it seems, and maybe this is just me displaying my ignorance of college baseball, it seems like a relatively new phenomenon, like the last 15 years or so, and I could be way off there, but what has been the biggest driver in Oregon State becoming such a baseball powerhouse? Yeah, it's Pat Casey, the head coach. He's he's taken over the program in the 90s and really kind of transformed it because this was a program that was, you know, back when it was the Pac, it was Pac-8 at one point um, as far as baseball because not all of the Pac-12 had teams. And... uh I guess I still don't, but um, I mean, at the time there was this North division, South division, they've combined those. Pat Casey's been really the driver there. Um, it's been his program. He has worked, you know, he's really the fundraiser, the coach. He does everything himself. And, uh, you know, they, they've made it to Omaha back in 2005, 06, 07. Uh, so um, it's been several years of um, some great teams. Last year, they, they fell short. Uh, in that final against LSU, but um, they expect to be back. It's a, it's a fair, it was a fairly young team last year. And um, you know, it's Oregon doesn't have the best weather this time of year and they uh, seem to really embrace it. And Pat Casey's gotten these guys in the league. They come back. Uh, it is a big time culture, uh, baseball culture at Oregon state. This might be a first Dave. Do we, do we ever talk baseball? I don't think we have. Not, not, not once, but <laughs> look, these are special circumstances, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, that you might want to like talk baseball if you get Ryan Gorsey on because he's like the baseball nut. But right, um, yes. 
it's, it's all good. I mean, Oregon state has a great program and it is super fun, fun to follow, especially, you know, in the springtime and um, especially the way football has been going for Oregon state. <laughs> well, we did want to jump in. So we've, uh, we sent you these questions beforehand, but um, th- these are questions kind of covering the range of, of institutional questions about Oregon state, um, you know, finances, resources, recruiting, politics, yada, yada, yada. So we'll just jump right in. Um, the first section covers resources. Um, and this is, does Oregon state have the money to meet its program goals? Are its facilities adequate and modern? And does it have the financial ability to make a sudden high quality coaching change if it wants? Yeah. I mean, super, super. I, I think I've told Ryan kind of yesterday when we were kind of talking about this, it's super timely for Oregon state because in the lodge at Beaver Blitz, it's been a huge topic right now. Um, as just the whole resources. And I will say Oregon state, while it's never going to be one of the rich programs in the conference, there is money there. Um, they do not have the smallest budget in the PAC 12. Um, my last check, it looked like, uh, Oregon state was at $86.7 million for expenses and budget. Uh, it's, it's a larger budget than schools like Cal Pitt, Northwestern, Oklahoma state, Virginia tech. So several schools that, you know, have pretty good departments. Um, Oregon state is larger than that. Now you look at, um, facilities adequate? Yes. I mean, they've made a lot of upgrades and improvements over the years. Is there still a ton of work to do? Yes. Um, Oregon State has a new athletic director in Scott Barnes. He came to Oregon State from Pitt and his big, you know, he, he just launched this whole strategic plan, which, you know, Beaver fans, it's really pretty. It's, it's pages and pages of of their plan and what they want to do. Um, you know, it deals a lot with academics and graduation rates and championships. Um, but, you know, Beaver fans are kind of in this stand backish, like, wait, let's just wait and see what happens here. You've been here less than a year. And then I have been told in the spring there actually will be a full on facility master plan that is released. So, um, you know, some updates to Gill Coliseum. I know there there's talk of hanging a, a center, you know, video board, scoreboard thing from the center of, of that building. Um, some football improvements to the football facilities. But if you've been to Corvallis, you know, one of the things that's great about Oregon State's kind of football facility is. Everything is right there. So um, the football operations building and the locker rooms, which just went through a, like an $80 million renovation locker room, they can cross a, a crosswalk and be at the uh, lit practice fields. So there's also an indoor facility. Um, the sports medicine facility is right across the parking lot. So everything is kind of right there. Weight room is, is right there for the student athletes. So that's kind of fun. I mean, especially covering the team, you can – it's seriously walking across the street or a parking lot and you get everywhere you need to go. So, um, that part of the facility is great. Um, there are some old things that need, need fixing. And, you know, at a school like Oregon state, one would argue that maybe they need to take facilities a step higher, right. Just to kind of set them apart. But, um, the fine, the, the ability to make financial or to make sudden high quality coaching changes, gosh, Oregon state has had, that's some of their issue right now is they got into kind of a mess with Craig Robinson basketball coach before Wayne Tinkle, they had to buy him out. They had to buy out LaVonda Wagner, which was the women's basketball coach before Scott Ruick. Um, that was a mess, had to, had to buy her out of her contract. And, uh, you know, now the Gary Anderson three years, um, into his tenure, he just up and quits and Oregon state is on the hook for several of his assistants right now. So, um, you know, do they have the resources? Yes. I wouldn't say they'd, you know, they're in no position to go out and, you know, take, Chris Peterson or Nick Saban away anytime soon. The uh, we talked to to 
Dan Rubenstein in the last segment about Oregon and, and some of the, you know, obviously they have, uh, you know, pretty extensive financial resources available, but Oregon State's also a, a Nike school too. Is how generous has Nike been with Oregon State? And is there any kind of like, well, it's the rival school to the founder's alma mater, so they're not going to get as much money. Is, are they, have they been generous? Have they helped out uh, the Beavers a lot? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a huge thing. You know, Oregon State fans are kind of in this like screw Nike. Let's go Under Armour Adidas because both Under Armour and Adidas um, are based in Portland, the Under Armour shoe division. So um, they're all here. Everybody's right here. And, and there's a lot of uh, an Oregon State contingent that thinks that Oregon State should move. But, um, you know, a lot of that the quote unquote Nike money isn't Nike money that's coming for the facilities or the Matthew Knight arena and, and the things that you hear about that's coming from Phil Knight himself. So um, Oregon state is a tier one Nike program, which I believe there's 12 to 15 schools, USC, Oregon, Oregon state. Um, there's, you know, kind of a handful of, of those tier one level schools and Oregon state is one of them. So they get the newest, the best gear. Um, and so that it's, it's been a good partnership, but um, I don't think there's, I mean, there's several donors out there um, for all kind of all the schools, but nobody that fits that mold, like a film night is for, um, for Oregon being in the sports industry. I mean, that's, it's kind of a, a, a unicorn donor right there for them. So, um, but Oregon state does have, um, you know, a lot of ability and um, they're able to do things, you know, with Nike. We, we asked that original question kind of in the context of program goals, and I'm always interested what those actually are for each school because they change by the school. You know, USC wants to win national titles every year. Uh, you know, Arizona probably wants to win the conference every, I don't know, six to eight years or whatever it is and, and be competitive in the South. What is it for Oregon State? Because, you know, Oregon State obviously has had a rough few years here, but it wasn't that long ago that they went to you know, what is it, nine bowl games in 11 years with Dennis Erickson and Mike Riley. Is that is that the realistic program goal to be a bowl team every year and, you know, win the conference, whatever it was, once in a, like a 10 year period there? Is that the program goal or what is it in your mind? In my you know, it's funny. You hear coaches and coaches will say, oh, it's win a national championship. You know, like for, you know, it, at Beaver Bliss, we've talked about this. And I think tangible goal for Oregon State is is very similar to maybe like in Arizona. It's a be competitive in all your games, be a bowl team every year, kind of strive for that. You know, you have the eight, nine, 10 win season. And then once every 10 years, you are playing for the conference championship and you are in a big bowl game. So, um, you know, and, and try to limit those, you know, four win seasons to, you know, none to next to none, you know, build that continuity, build, build that, that team. But, um, you know, Oregon state is what it is. It's, it's not, it doesn't have any rich history in, in football. Um, you know, it, it was a 28, they had a, a span there of 28 losing seasons. So there's really this kind of a lost generation, if you will. I mean, when I attended Oregon state in the nineties, it was awful. I mean, we would celebrate Oregon state students would celebrate if they beat the spread, you, they might win one game out of the year. So, um, you know, it, they weren't well attended. They weren't well funded. Um, you know, and, but that was in the nineties. Right. And so it doesn't take, and that sounds ancient now, but, um, I, you know, I remember a time when Oregon, Oregon State and Washington State, the talk was, to, you know, why were they in the Pac-10? Because they weren't competitive. So Oregon kind of flipped things around. Um, it was 94 when they had their first Rose Bowl win or Rose Bowl berth. But before that, those three teams were the homecoming games for everybody else on the, on the schedule. So um, I, I think being realistic, Oregon State, 
that that needs to be the goal. You know, every uh, 10 years or so be a conference in the in the contention for a conference championship, but um, really strive for those those years of, you know, the Sun Bowl, Holiday Bowl, Alamo or um, El Paso or uh, San Antonio, Alamo Bowl. Alamo so, Bowl, yeah. So kind of, you know, kind of striving for those eight to eight, nine win seasons with a, a 12, 11 or 12 kind of sprinkled in. All right. Um, so the second part of the question is, does Oregon State have the first pick of the best recruits in the area? And how valuable is that pool of recruits? And how is Oregon State thought of by national recruits? You know, Oregon State tries to be national, but they're not getting the first, you know, the first shot. As far as, as in-state, in the area, you know, I, I, most of those kids, Oregon isn't like this hotbed of talent. Um, you know, you have the past couple of years, there's been four, five. Um, but even then, they're not even going to Oregon. You know, Talano Hufanga went to Oregon or USC and, um, you know, they've, they've gone out of state completely. So that is an area I, I'm, I differ than, from a lot of people because, you know, you hear a lot of pundits, you hear coaches, you hear fans saying that, you know, Oregon State needs to win the state of Oregon first. And I, I don't agree because I, I don't think Oregon has that hotbed of talent. I think, you know, Southern California is huge. Northern California is an area that I think they need to tap into more. And um, there's a lot of talent in Northern California. And it's, you know, an, a drive, you know, for most of those kids. So um, families can still come see them play. Under Coach Anderson, they tried to go Florida, tried to, tried to go Georgia. Had some success. Um, I, you know, I had a conversation with Oregon State's former running back coach who came from Miami, um, was a high school coach down in Miami. And, you know, he said the talent in Miami, the two stars in, in that South Florida area would be four stars anywhere else. I don't disagree, but that's a, a ginormous move for those kids and a, a pretty big culture shock to come from Miami to Corvallis. So I think sticking to that West Coast footprint, getting some guys in Texas, uh, where Oregon State does have some ties, Hawaii sticking with the islands is is kind of their their mold. When when Oregon State was having uh, probably its best period of success between you know ninety nine and two thousand nine with Dennis Erickson and Mike Riley, what was the formula? Um, what was the makeup of those teams in terms of regional recruiting? Was it a primarily Californian teams? What what did those teams look like? It, it was it was heavily California. There was Texas, Hawaii, um, those those areas. Um, and it was going after the guys, you know, it's Oregon State's not going to get the five-star guys, you know, and, and quite honestly, I don't know if Oregon State with the culture, if that, if that makes sense. Um, they did a good job of identifying needs and finding guys that, um, I'm, Mike Riley always called them diamonds in the rough. And I, I think they're harder to find now because of so much more, um, there's seven on seven teams and, but finding those guys that want to be at Oregon State, you know, they want that small college town, um, and be developed and, and it's guys that will listen and be developed and are coachable. That was kind of the MO under, under the Beavers and maybe guys that didn't start as true freshmen that redshirted and, and took a year or two, but by the time they were juniors and seniors were, you know, all conference type guys. Angie, would you say like, you know, like the, the Hufungas of the world, the five stars that are in Corvallis, like, you know, it's going to be hard to keep those guys home. When we talked to Dan, he said, yeah, Oregon doesn't do that either. So you really kind of get picked over. But are there is there still opportunities for some of the guys that, um, you know, two, three star guys that could you know, could stay local? I, I remember covering Fresno State 
and the the Tim Deruder, who was the head coach there, didn't really recruit the Central Valley all that well. Now you wouldn't keep the five stars close, but you could keep some of the the other guys, and there was enough talent there that you could do that. I don't know. Is there enough talent in Oregon? Is there enough like two and three star guys that you can keep four or five of them every year and keep them close because they're like that local, you know, close to home option? Yeah, yeah, there are some guys like that, and Oregon State signed a couple in this class. The one that kind of stands out to me is is Bradley Bickler, and he really had not a lot of options, but he's a six seven. He's six seven two thirty right now. Um, played up in Portland area, and um, Oregon State likes him. He tied in defensive end, but he played quarterback for his high school team this year because he was the best athlete on the team. But um, you know, a guy like that, he, he's going to need a year or two in the weight room, but definitely has the size. He's really long, um, you know, two star 24 seven had him as a two star, but he's a guy that I'm, I'm really watching. And there, you know, there's a handful every year that, yeah, the, their options might not be huge. Um, and more of a developmental type guy. Do you anything else on recruiting, Ryan? No, let's go to our uh, third topic. All right. So the third topic is the politics of the institution. Um, and so this question is, uh, does football have the necessary institutional support and competence from the school administration? How do you describe the factional divisions among the fan base, boosters, and insiders? It's good questions. I mean, that's, you know, Oregon State during their heyday back in, in the 2000, early 2000s, the, the school president was an amazing proponent for, for football and, and knew that if Oregon State could get that football program turned around, that's really the front porch for the whole university. It brings boosters back. It brings um, fans back. It, it helps enrollment. It helps all everything. And, and that we saw that happen at Oregon State. Um, back in the 90s, enrollment was in that 13 to 14,000 range. And today it's pushing 27,000. So it's doubled um, since the days, you know, just less than 20 years ago. New buildings. Oregon State finished up a billion dollar capital campaign for a university. Um, so there's a lot going on that side with a new president now, mind you. President Ed Ray talks the talk. He came from Ohio State. He talks about the importance of athletics. They are, you know, helping to fund the athletics and they've, they've been, um, you know, supportive on the outside. I, Seeing what happens now, and I I really see the next five years to be so imperative for Oregon State for football, because if football isn't funded properly, um, and there's the outside factions, right? There are the divisions of, you know, women's basketball. Um, Oregon State has a top 20 women's basketball team, and they pay their salary. The coaches' salaries are, are high, and Oregon State has made that commitment. You know, how far do you spread your resources for some of those peripheral programs? to the extent that it hurts football. And that's where um, a, a lot of the Oregon State fans on our message board are really concerned right now um, because right now, you know, Oregon State is funded. Their their expenses in the past year was $16.4 million. That was less than any other Power 5 program in the country. Now, the new AD has said just Saturday that, that he plans to change that. And, you know, the mean, just for, for the listeners, Oregon State spent sixteen point or last year on football expenses, the mean for the Pac-12 was $25.5 million. So that's the mean. So Oregon State is way, well below the average for that. Um, and it's not for things like debt. You know, I, I let into, I think, I don't know if I said this on air or not, but, you know, people think Oregon State might have a higher debt, but um, Oregon State allocated only 11.9% of their expenses to debt, whereas Cal was 30% and U of O was nearly 23%. So, um, Oregon State has resources. It's just a matter of the 
allocation of that. And it'll be interesting to see now in the next year with this strategic plan, with the facility master plan coming out, will Oregon State's, um, you know, president back that and will the administration get behind it? Why do you think that was, Andy? Why do you think that there's been that discrepancy of uh, just not spending a whole lot on the football program when it seems like people get it that it's a big reason why enrollment's gone up so much and it's been a huge, you know, help to the university over the years? Yeah, I mean, as you think about it, it's it's seven weekends a year, right? That you can get your the university can get their biggest donors on campus and and feel good about something. So, you know, I really don't know. I don't know what the what the premise has been. Oregon State is on their third athletic director though in three years. Um, so some of that has been, you know, it's been a lot of of turmoil there. Um, you know, Oregon State when Mitch Barnhart came on board back in '99, um, Oregon State was huge debt. Huge Huge, huge debt. I, I don't even know the, you know, the numbers. That's well before my time. But, um, you know, between him, he moved on to Kentucky, and then um, Bob DeCareless was his his um, succeeded him. And Bob was, they called him Bob the Builder. He was very much an X's and O uh, money guy, and he had huge layoffs within the department. I, I've seen lots of expansion in the department. Now, the Oregon State AD tells me they're still one of the smallest departments in the in the conference. I'm sure they know their their stuff, but um, you know they they're trying to make up for marketing cuts and different cuts. But um, you know, Oregon State needs to figure out this whole allocation, and you know, with 18% of the budget going to football, you know, you, you can tell me all day that you know football or you know they don't have the money, but when it's only a per- when you look at percentages, and Oregon State still last in the conference, it, it doesn't you know it doesn't hold water. With uh, with the whole Gary Anderson situation, was that at all due to? I know there was a whole series of text messages that got released when he um, ultimately did have his kind of withdrawal from from the position. But um, what uh, was it? Was I'm any of that? To hear what you were going to say? How you were going to phrase that one? <laughs> um, was any was any of that due to lack of institutional support? I mean, do you think it was budding frustration from that, or was? It all kind of coaching staff related. What did you kind of th- see that stemming from? Oh my gosh, you should hear some of the rumors that are flying around up in Corvallis. I mean, there's there's all kinds of juicy, juicy soap opera type things going on. But um, <laughs> well, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I you know I, it's been crazy. There infidelity, alcohol, all kind. I mean, it's run the gamut. So fun I mean, thing. Seriously, fun so thing. sorry. Good. Yeah. It, like I said, it's the soap opera, and I I honestly don't know. I. I have tried so hard to find out like the real, real scoop, but nobody, nobody's talking. Um, but he, he's gone, right? He, he's now at Utah. Um, I don't know what he would say. He would probably point to institutional support. That being said, Scott Barnes was his AD while he was at Utah State. Was almost handpicked, right? That Gary Anderson, I mean, to bring him back as the AD. So that doesn't, it does, you know, Scott and Gary had a great relationship. Um, I, I really do think at the end of the day, I mean, the stories that happened as far as the coaching, kind of the, um, just the non-communication between the coaching staff. Um, yeah, you wouldn't believe the, the, the stories, just that the coaches didn't talk, you know, during meetings they'd argue. And um, I, I really do think after three years, Gary realized that he would have to implode his entire staff. And then who are you going to find of any quality coach that's going to want to come and be on the hot seat immediately in year one? Right. 
I, I, I think he just found that he was completely too far deep to flip it. So, um, you know, and he, he's the one that made those hires. They were all his hires and it didn't work. So, um, I think that was kind of his way of kind of stepping, bowing out and bow out before the end of a season, because you look a lot better if you aren't attached to that one and 11 record and, and move on from there. Angie, what's the relationship like? The, the latter part of the question was about the integration, you know, like the boosters and the, you know, the fans and the administration, everybody, are they kind of all on the same page when it comes to this? Cause it's, you know, with the, the losing seasons, I don't know if there's any kind of fighting or feeling it should be going one direction or the other. What, what's the kind of makeup of, uh, how everyone feels there? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, between the message board and, and some of the, the big boosters that I, I know, everybody I think is on the same page. They know that football is the driving engine. They know what kind of needs to happen. And they're, you know, there's both. I mean, there's some kind of, it's an interesting dynamic right now because Oregon State brought back a coach. Their head coach is a first-time head coach. He was the offensive coordinator at Washington, but he was the star quarterback that 2000 Fiesta Bowl year. So Jonathan Smith is back as in his first head coaching job. And, but the boosters seem so excited. You know, I, I attended the football recruiting dinner up in Portland on um, signing day, and to see the boosters that I spoke with were so on board and having someone that got the culture and is embracing the former players and getting them back in the mix. Um, the, the past Anderson staff kind of closed that down and really wanted kind of their own culture, create their own stamp. And, uh, you know, here, Jonathan Smith is one of them. He's, he's a player. He's, he knows it here. He knows what it takes to be successful here. And, you know, is kind of embracing that and the, and the boosters seem to be, to be embracing that as well. All right. Well, that's, that's it for me on this series. Should we get to some Twitter questions? Yeah. We got a, got a bunch of Angie. People want to know about Oregon state football. So they're going to, they, they tweeted us some nice. questions. Yeah. Uh, looks like kosher Bruins. First one just seems like what we've just talked about extensively. So I'm going to just skip that one. If uh, you're okay with it, Ryan. Sure. Yeah. Um, there's one. All right. So this is from, uh, Coog Olden Graham. So that's Coog Olden Graham. Uh, how do Oregon State fans feel about the return of Mike Riley to the team after the Nebraska exodus? Yeah, you know, it was such a strange time. You know, you look back to, yeah, you always have to remember, like, be careful what you wish for, because Beaver fans wanted Riley gone when he left for Nebraska. Now he's back, and there's been a, a it's been interesting to watch. Just how the school and athletic department handles it, any kind of press conference, it, they're really forcing it's Jonathan Smith's team. Mike is, is a tight end coach and that is his role. And um, it was interesting because that recruiting dinner I attended, Mike Riley got a standing ovation, which surprised me in, in some ways, just because there were so many fans that were kind of wanted him gone and now they've embraced him back. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a good role for coach Riley. I think he is, very good when he's able to plan and game plan and and develop players and not have to be the CEO of of the team. We had a question from Ginger Bruin, uh, Scott Buckley. We asked this to Dan as well. Um, I know you cover recruiting extensively, so we'll we'll get you this one. What is the next crazy way a recruit announces for a school? We've seen haircuts, pets, babies, videos, and there's got to be another level. Is it a tattoo using a famous alum? I want to see more ridiculousness. <laughs> you got to be 
careful. See, Oregon State years ago, Cleveland Wallace committed to Oregon State at the opening, and he had shaved the Beaver logo on the side of his head. And then, you know, fast forward six months, and he signs ends up signing <laughs> elsewhere. So <laughs> that those pictures can last a life. I don't know. Gosh, I think using a famous alumni would be kind of cool. You know, Oregon State would, you know, you could get Stephen Jackson in the mix or Jacquez Rogers or Matt Moore or somebody. It'd be kind of fun. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. But at least it was shaved um, in his head, not tattooed on his head. Then that would be. Cause it, yeah. Yes. No, it was, it was like, just shaved, you know, shaved the beaver logo. But there was like an Alabama guy or an Auburn guy that t- like tattooed one or the other and they ended up going to the other school. I forget what it was, but something crazy like that. Yeah. I yeah. And I, I think I, that I was a tattoo. I actually think they're kind of fun, though. I think they're kind of yeah. fun. I mean, let the kids have their fun. And, you know, it, it was so interesting as these guys, you know, they're they're so on top of the world and they're like the ginormous fish in the tiny pond and little do they know that like four months after the, and you know, right after they graduate, they go and they're back to being this tiny fish in this giant pond. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this might be a joke in reference to um, maybe some mean stuff we said about Nick Mitchell back in the past. I can't remember Ryan, uh, but Condor <laughs> 24 said, ask the Oregon state guy. So obviously uh, he doesn't know oh what he's gosh. talking about at all here. Uh, ask the Oregon State guy if it's nice having a QB who can throw left again. <laughs> I don't know if Oregon State even has a QB, to be completely <laughs> honest right now. <laughs> Gary Anderson ran off so many quarterbacks. When he took over, there were seven quarterbacks on the roster, spring camp. He ran off Luke Del Rio, who ended up starting at Florida. He ran off um, Marcus McMarion, who ended up starting at Fresno State. And then, um, God, his name's going to escape me I right now. He, but the, I think he ran off Nick Mitchell, didn't he? He ran off Nick Mitchell. Yeah, that was, that was, you know, Nick Mitchell's down at Southern Oregon now. But what the kid that came in, um, at Iowa State. Oh, oh right, right, right. Yeah, he was one that was run off too. <laughs> nice. And meanwhile, Oregon State had people, uh, no quarterback. So, you know, hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's awesome. Try covering Oregon State. That's what, I'm the, the Oregon State guy. Try covering, try to cover it. Sometimes I could just make up some good stories. I mean, it's fair that, you know, 99% of us in this are, are male. So, exactly. But, but I no. tweeted your name. So, like, I, I mean, I, I, you know, <laughs> no, it's good. I didn't think the person would know. Um, I get looks. You should, I mean, seriously. And then, you know, then I'll go to, you know, carpool line or something and talk to a, a mom at school and they have no, and then their husband will come up and, you're Angie Machado. Oh my gosh, I hear you on the radio. And the wife's just like clueless, like, what? You do what? <laughs> why are you talking to that woman? Like, <laughs> yeah, why are we talking football? Why? Why do you talk football? That's funny. We had a, okay, this is a tweet from at Coach Morrow OSU. He's a Beaver fan and a family man. And his, uh, the background on his Twitter is like the best college town in the Pac 12. So he's a big Oregon State guy. Uh, with a reasonable amount of funding and good coaching, how long should it take for a Power 5 team to turn around a program? In this case, Oregon State. But I'm also curious about your thoughts overall as well. Well, it's not basketball. I mean, it's not like going to happen in a year. But um, and I don't know. I mean, I know Coach Morrow, so I don't know. I mean... And Oregon State, what's turning around? Winning like five games? Is that is that considered a turnaround? I mean, um, you know, I think a reasonable. I think fans at Oregon State. I mean, they've come off a one eleven season, and their one win was barely eking out a win against Portland State. It makes you cringe just thinking about it, right? So, 
I would, I mean, I would say give him three years to get things on the right, on the right track. That makes sense. That makes um, sense. Do we, that's what, my, right. what do you guys think? I mean, three years, I, that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think with any football program, it definitely takes longer than basketball to your point. I mean, you can have freshmen make an impact in basketball and suddenly it turns out pretty well, but in football, yeah, I mean, minimum of, of two years for a really big rebuild. And I would say, I mean, it could take as many as four. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. you know, I, I, I think Washington took a while when they completely tanked. Um, Washington State took a while when they completely tanked. And Oregon State is right now in that position where they yeah, have I mean, more or less completely tanked. But, you know, I will say, um, you know, there, I, I question, I mean, a lot of things coaching can help a lot. And I do and I, I've spoken to some of the new coaches on the staff, they said there's more talent to this team than a 1-11 team would indicate. So depending on how the coaching works out, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess Oregon State played UCLA or USC this year. I mean, the defense looked clueless half the time. And, you know, now after the fact, we hear that the coaches were all, t- I mean, they had diff- they were teaching them different things. And then Coach Anderson got mad and came in the meeting room and taught them a completely different way of doing things. I mean, they seriously had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. So and, and, it'll be interesting to see. And you know, Oregon how, State should have beat Stanford out. last year. I mean, so. They should have like, beat Stanford, yeah. So the good thing is that, it's a, yeah, it's a one win team, but like it could have easily been a couple more and with some stability, like a little more cohesiveness in the coaching staff. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's a. It's not that hard to bounce off the bottom and get to four wins or five wins, but then it's like, okay, what's the next level of making a bowl game? Exactly. How long exactly. does that a take? Bowl game. You know? Yeah, yeah. Especially that first year, you sometimes get the the emotional the emotional play, and so no, I I think three to four is like I said, especially where Oregon State is right now. It's it's not a, a quick quick fix, but we've seen it done. I mean, Stanford they were they were in the cellar for quite a while, like you mentioned, Washington, Washington State. So just a matter of getting the right guy in place. All right. Well, that was it's, great stuff. I think we're out of questions. There was a, okay. So there was this one from Mr. TPSM, and I don't know if this was for Oregon, or Oregon State, but he said, "How does it feel to no longer be the biggest at the biggest scandal within the Pac-12?" So was that I, that wasn't for either school, was it? Like, who was the biggest scandal? What was he talking about there? I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. I mean, the biggest story, like when when Gary Anderson just left, like that was kind of. I mean, I don't yeah. know if there was a scandal, but that was like, whoa, okay. So, um, yeah, but I don't know. I just ignore the questions that don't make any sense to me, so I just skip right <laughs> past that one. I don't know what scandal. I just I thought you know I was missing something. I mean, you guys right were now it's minutes, so. yeah Sean Miller. So yeah, I mean the joke at Oregon State. I I ran into a, a Oregon State fan the other day, and he's, after the Arizona game, he's like, well. The good news is Oregon State's doing things the right way because it's obvious Tinkle's not paying guys. <laughs> and if he is, he's like paying his kids, and that's kind of weird. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's paying coaches' kids, you know, yeah. his own kids, Coach, Th- Coach Thompson's kids. Nice. All right. Well, hey, Angie, that was so cool. Thanks so much for uh, coming on. And we got to talk, you know. Of course. I've got some good stuff, you know, baseball, not just the football team. Yes, yes. Even though that's what we normally do, but we're we're pulling for special circumstances, Ryan. Special circumstances. We talk about baseball. You gotta highlight some good stuff every once in a while. Yes, exactly right. We uh, we're gonna do that. But Angie, thanks so much. Uh, definitely check out her work at BeaverBlitz.com. Uh, thanks again for coming on. 
Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Well, that was pretty cool stuff. Uh, Dave, what'd you think? Action packed organ show. Yeah. Lots of good stuff, both Angie and Dan. Uh, a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun to do. From the Emerald State, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's like green, right? It's green. You know, I think I said that like, like last the... year or something that made people mad. So I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, that one gets them super mad because you're, uh, you're missing it by one. Yeah. <laughs> it's an important one. It is. But, uh, awesome to get, uh, you know, our buddy Dan on and, and Angie's always really good at this stuff. So it's not easy to come on and talk about a one and 11 football team, but, um, I see it's a really good insight. It was funny when she messaged me back and said that, like they have stuff, you know, discussions on their message board right now about what the resources are and stuff. So it's, it's been a topic there. So this is, these are really good questions from Hitler day. I think they've all been really interesting, uh, really interesting deep dives into all these schools. Yeah. We got to pay them some of the royalties we're getting from this. Yeah. Like some of the big money that we're getting paid. Let's just split it 50-50. So yeah. you get half of what we got. So Yeah. Half of the half of the nothing. <laughs> um so we've got a couple of email questions for our, just us two that okay. we gotta get into. Yeah. Um I'm gonna start off with Bill. Okay. Uh this is uh from our friend Bill V. Uh love the podcast, guys. Do you think that the number of teams in the conference matters and sets the Pac-12 and Big 12, really 10, at a disadvantage to the other Big 5 conferences? The ACC, SEC, and Big 10, another can't-count conference, all have 14 teams. (laughs) I think they get more votes in polls because their uh, coaches' polls vote for each other, and they have more media within their areas of influence who would be biased towards them. I've never thought about that, but that's probably true. Uh, they would also probably have more sway in the selection committee. If the Pac-12 did look to expand further, where would they go that could tangibly expand the conference exposure and influence? There doesn't seem to be any geographical options that could really help with the Pac's exposure in significant population centers without going way out of the West. Oklahoma and Texas are really East Coast-centric if you had to assign a coast to them, and I'm not sure they would fit well or for very long. Fresno, San Diego, uh, Boise, Las Vegas are already more or less Pac-12 territory. Albuquerque and El Paso are the nearest significant cities, but wouldn't be big gains for the conference. Question for your look. Okay, so these are all kind of separate questions. So, um, number of teams question. Yeah, I think for me, I think the big disadvantage is like what we get talking about parity is that if you're in the, you look at the SEC, um, you could have your two best teams not play each other and still make it and play in the national championship. So it's a lot harder to do that. You don't miss it. If you added two more teams, then you're missing more. And now they, now the SEC also only plays eight conference games. So it's even worse. I mean, it's, it's, it's even worse than just an extra conference game. It's the fact that you, you don't play most of the other people in your division where in the Pac 12, you play just about everybody. You miss a couple of schools every year. So I think adding two more, it would allow, you know, a few more misses where maybe. If, you know, like say Washington and like UCLA were the best on the both sides and, you know, they're going to play less often. Um, and so you don't have to get that extra loss and they could both make the championship game, maybe undefeated or one loss or whatever and help. But I think that's the, for me, that's the big aspect of it was the more teams you add, the more teams you miss. And then you don't have to, you know, you're not necessarily playing every good team in the conference every year, like the Pac 12. It seems to happen that way. Yeah. I think that's all dead on. Um, I think you make good points. I think Bill made good points. I think the quantity of teams and the um, size of the footprint probably does 
mean there's more media in the area, obviously more coaches making the votes, and I think probably does have a little bit more sway in the uh, general, uh, you know, zeitgeist around college football. So, yeah, I think uh, both very good points. I have no additional thoughts. Yeah. Um, and then if the Pac-12 did look to expand further, where would they go? They could tangibly expand the conference exposure and influence. I mean, I, I know he kind of poo-poos Oklahoma and Texas here, but I don't think of those as East Coast centric at all. I think no. that if you were going to assign them a coast, I think it would be the West Coast. I think they're Western, you know, I mean, I mean, when you think of the West, and I know this is now getting into like really broad generic terms, but when you think of the West, I mean, I, I think Texas and Oklahoma are categorized in that and not necessarily in the East. Um, and I, I think they fit. I mean, I, I don't think they're a fit in anything besides the old Big 8, Big 10, and Big 12, or not Big 10, but what it currently is, um, in the old Big 8 and Big 12 um, and Southwestern Conference and so on. But um, if I was fitting them somewhere, I mean, I think the Pac-12 makes more sense. I don't think Texas has interest in being another. I, I think they would want to be like close to the big dog in whatever conference they would choose after the Big 12, if the Big 12 ever does really fall apart. And the closest they're going to get to that is probably the Pac-12, where the only other school with anything like the institutional um, buy-in and, um, you know, tradition is USC. And they would be, you know, Texas would be at worst second fiddle and possibly they would, you know, move the pole of the conference a little bit. But in the SEC, they're behind Alabama. You know, you could make a case they're behind Georgia. You could make a case they're behind LSU. I mean, there's they would suddenly be maybe the fourth best football program in the conference. Um, so I, I just can't see them making that move. And I don't see Oklahoma moving away from Texas. So I think Pac-12 would make the most sense for them in the long run. I do too. And, uh, yeah, you saw it like Texas A&M, like they go in and, uh, they're just kind of another team in the SEC. Uh, I don't think the Pac-12 is looking to expand. I think there's just too many other problems right now. And would, it, you know, would adding like Fresno State and San Diego State, you know, move the needle? I don't think it would at all. I think you would have to bring in big time schools like that. So it would be college football disrupting kind of stuff you know Oklahoma and Texas coming to the Pac-12 would be disruptive to college football I think that's the only thing that would move the needle and I'm just not sure if the Pac-12 is in a position to kind of do that right now and I don't know if schools like that would want to join when you look at what the distribution that you're going to get from the Pac-12 network it's pretty terrible um, so I, I'm just not sure that the Pac-12 is in a position to add anything that would be a game changer at this point. Yeah, and I think that's probably um, that, that that makes sense. I mean, I I wouldn't add any of those lower level schools in the area because it doesn't provide you anything in terms of TV footprint. Um, I mean, I think Utah and Colorado gave them a little bit in that department, which made made sense to add them. But I think if you're going below, like adding like a BYU would never make sense because you're already getting Utah ish with Utah. You're already getting that Salt Lake City market, and BYU probably isn't a philosophical fit with the Pac-12 and uh, the way the conference is. And, uh, you know, San Diego State, I mean, there's no nothing additional you get from San Diego that you're not already getting from USC and U, yeah, UCLA. Um, so, yeah, I just don't see a, a reason to necessarily do that. Um, all right, and then the final question was, question for your look at Washington State. Will the speed defense go away now that Grinch has left Washington State, or will they stick with that philosophy? So I um so we'll try to 
I'll save this now. So when we do our deep dive into Washington yeah. state, we can do that. But I, I texted a buddy that, that, uh, pretty familiar. He, he wasn't sure, uh, at this point, but he feels that they're going to have to just because of the talent that's there. It's not a big, you know, it's not a big defensive line. It's not like they changed the recruiting philosophy overnight. So even if, you know, the philosophy is going to be different, I just don't, from what he was telling me, he just doesn't think it can be different at this point because of the talent on hand. Yeah, and I would say Tracy Clay's, uh, the new defensive coordinator, is um, a big-time guy. I mean, he was the head coach at Minnesota for a couple of years um, and uh, was a longtime defensive coordinator at Minnesota, and they put together some pretty darn good defenses in that time. So, um, I mean, it, they, they made a pretty damn good hire. And, uh, you know, I, I imagine based off the personnel they recruited with Grinch, I would imagine they're not, even if they are planning a, a shift to, I don't know, more of a big powerful defense or a run stout defense or whatever they're going for, um, it, it, it would probably take more than a year. Um, generally, you're not going to see a wholesale scheme change in a single year um, on the defensive side of the ball just because you recruit guys to a certain way and it's going to be hard to just change generally doesn't lead to anything good if you just try to change things immediately to something whole wholly yeah. different we're gonna run the five two but we have a bunch of guys that are 250 <laughs> pounds you know it's like no exactly <laughs> exactly we, we had a three three five and now we're gonna run the bear defense <laughs> um okay i think we have one more question uh this is called high times this is from our buddy Hitlerday. Basically, the whole podcast is sponsored by Hitlerday Almond. So yeah, this is the Hitlerday Almond show. Uh, yes, uh, we are just his. We're his minions at this point. Okay. Uh, in your interviews with the Utah and Colorado publishers, I was a little surprised that neither Sorensen nor Munster Tiger discussed a peculiar approach to recruiting Southern California, not being in Southern California. One thing that's mentioned in all of the profiles I've read on Rod McBride, Bill McCartney. Um, Lavelle Edwards and Chris Peterson is that they pitched their mountain time zone schools as quote unquote clean living or a quote fresh start to kids or maybe more accurately their parents and guardians who might be in some kind of trouble if they stayed in Los Angeles or Houston. I wonder if you boys have encountered this angle from schools trying to poach kids from your backyard. Do you think it's less effective as violent crime has plummeted since the mid 1990s? So I can't speak to it over time, but that's definitely something you've heard. I mean, I, I can think of one really famous example, which is DeAnthony Thomas, who yeah. a big reason that he left the area and went to Oregon was, I, I think, some element that just kind of said it was maybe a good idea for him to have something new and not be around the same forces that were in the L.A. area. But I've heard this a bunch with guys, actually not for the mountain schools, but I hear it a lot with Arizona and Arizona State where they pick up more than a few guys from the L.A. area, um, where it is seen as kind of a way to get them out of town, like just kind of get them away from influences and forces around them that, um, you know, maybe it would take them down a, a, a worse path. Um, and I've, I've heard that especially with some guys, I'm not going to name names, but especially some guys in recent times who've gone to Arizona and Arizona State, that was a good opportunity to get them a fresh start somewhere else. Um, but not as much with Utah and Colorado in the Pac-12, um, more the Arizona schools, and then obviously that famous example with uh, DeAnthony Thomas in Oregon. And I think like the Bill McCartney years, like I think he got some pretty bad apples out of Southern California that he would bring. The, the, but they had some really talented hey, players. Hey, we're not so. talking about the reality. We're talking about the marketing pitch. <laughs> oh, here, yes. Ryan. 
Okay. Um, but I think we've seen that in high school too. I think Angie mentioned like Troy Palomalu. He was, uh, I think, believe he was up in high school in Oregon to kind of get away from, um, you know, certain elements. My, uh, uh, why am I blanking? Uh, Howie Long. I went to my high school in Massachusetts. Uh, I went to some small high school that he, you know, he ended up going to because of, uh, wherever he was, it wasn't, you know, the greatest area. They moved someplace else. So we've seen k- kids do that for high school, but I think there's times, um, where there's people that just need to get away from home and there's people that would really just need to kind of stay close to home. Southern California, you just have the most dudes. So there's going to be a certain amount of them that just need to get away from home. Um, it, you know, we've seen that. I think you can see that anywhere, but there's just so many players concentrated in Southern California. It's not necessarily because of gang violence or whatever. It could be that, but sometimes you just need to, to get away from home, go to school someplace else. And uh, yeah, I think you're just going to see a lot more of that here in SoCal. Yeah, that's probably probably true. It probably is a function of population density uh, in a big big way. But yeah. all right, good stuff. But his uh, uh, his we, the the subject was high times. I thought he was going to talk about recruiting like to Colorado, you know, with um <laughs> with, Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's like a triple entendre. That's what he didn't yeah. So I don't know. I I thought but that didn't come up in uh the Colorado discussion or any of our Oregon discussions. I guess it's legal now. Um, and so in California too, or it's, it, I don't know the rule. It's become, isn't it, isn't it legal in Washington state too? Uh, yeah, I guess it is. I don't know. I'm it's not, legal everywhere, baby. I'm just not, yeah, I'm not, that's not my thing. So I don't really know a lot of what's going on there, but apparently that's happening. But I thought that's what he was kind of getting to, but his question, uh, did not, but maybe that'll yeah. come up. Maybe it'll come up when we talk to the Washington schools. Maybe, maybe we should bring it up. Maybe we should touch. We on could that. do that ourselves. Well, yeah. Dude, we did two shows. We had like four hours of shows in like a four day period. Like that's that's pretty good for us. And, off, and, and I went to I went to Disney World this weekend. <laughs> you did in so between our two we shows. Recorded, we recorded on like Wednesday or Thursday, and then we recorded again today. And in between that, I went to Disney World. I drove all the way to Orlando and back. Wow! So you basically recorded a show, drove to Disney World, came back, and recorded another show. That's what I do. That's how dedicated I am to all of you out there in the listening world. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. Well, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. I, I had a lot of fun, Dave. Did you have fun? I had I had so much fun. I had I had worlds of fun. I can't uh, I can't even describe the loads of fun. It was fun. Come on, you know. Dude, we... I'm I, I'm being completely sincere. You can tell by the modulation of my voice. Okay. But it was cool. So these uh, thanks Hitler Day for like these great ideas, and uh, and we were like like I said, we're lucky enough to have really great people that we can talk to every week of all these different schools. So now we have the Bay Area schools left, and the Apple State, the Washington or you know, <laughs> the Washington schools. Uh, <laughs> so <there's, laughs> I'm gonna get everybody mad at me. Um, oh, it's gonna be great though. Yeah, uh, we're hopefully we get to talk some Jake Browning. In one of these you know, upcoming weeks. Um, but spring practices are starting. So Colorado started Friday. We talked about this before. We'll try to get some updates. Uh, I guess once a week or whatever, we'll get some updates from the different spring practices, like the best, uh, the most important storylines and things like that. So it, we, I think we got some positive tweets about that, Dave. So I, we'll have to get on that and do that too. Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right. Sweet. All right. Well, that's David Woods. You know him from Bro. Bruin Report Online does an amazing job. I'm Ryan Abraham. You know me from uscfootball.com. Together, 
We make the you do an amazing right? job too. Hey, well, don't sell yourself short. You also do an amazing well, job. Well, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. And together, we are the podcast of champions, rolling along uh, with this great, de- in-depth, deep dive series on all the schools. So we got four schools left. Uh, back again next week, talking to two more. So thanks so much for tuning in to the podcast of champions, and we will talk to you next time.